Well, let's begin with a word of prayer for our session two. Heavenly Father, we come before you just now seeking your presence, seeking to know you more. My prayer is that now as we talk on some very serious subjects, then we move on to science and other issues, that you would teach us, that you would guide us through your word, through science, through health, and that you would help us to live out the health principles that they have a bigger impact on our mental and spiritual life than maybe we have formerly realized. So we pray that your blessing would be upon us. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. You know, there are a lot of questions. That sounds like maybe somebody's coming here. Oh, no. no. There, there are questions about many different things. People ask, they wonder about premarital sexual relations, you know, not just sex, but, you know, everything other than sex that leads up to sex before they are married. Other people, uh, you know, question homosexuality. There's, there's kind of the nature versus nurture issue that people wonder, was I born this way? Maybe it was from sexual abuse as a child, whatever it would be. Um, people wonder, maybe God doesn't really care about drinking alcohol, different kinds of things. But what does the Bible say on these issues, and how do we learn to overcome these things in general? We're going to be talking throughout the seminar more about overcoming, so this is just kind of preliminary to those things. But I want you to think about this as, as we begin. Uh, these issues, now I want, before we read what the Bible says, it has been said, and I'm no geneticist, I know very little about genetics, but... It, people say that somebody could be born with the gene for alcoholism. Is that true? I mean, they say that anyway. So let's just say that's true. Now, that would mean that, for instance, if your great-grandfather was an alcoholic and your grandfather was an alcoholic and your father was an alcoholic, could it be possible that you would be born with a gene for alcoholism, yes or no? A propensity. You could be born with it, maybe a, a natural tendency from your nature that would cause you to want alcohol. Now, okay, sometimes we think of that in, in, uh, when we apply it to many different things. Like, for instance, the Bible talks about the flesh. Romans 8, 5, and 6, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, right? Paul also said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. So, according to Paul, what is in my flesh, and maybe Paul's word for flesh would have been genes, right? I know that inside of me, nothing naturally good dwells. So he says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. He goes on to say, for to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I, I find not, or I don't have. So inside of me, I have all this bad, but I don't naturally have the good inside of me, Paul says. So, according to the Bible, the biblical perspective is that we are naturally sinful. We are naturally what the Bible calls carnal. We are naturally fleshly. So, we are born with a tendency for evil. Do you follow? 
We are born with a tendency to do evil. And so we could say, could it be true that we are born with a tendency for selfishness? Absolutely. And you've heard the illustration, and it's true. You don't have to teach a child to share their, well, no, you do have to teach them to share their toys. You, have to, you, you don't have to teach them to take the ball away from Billy and say, mine, right? You don't te- do parents teach their children that? No, they don't need to. They know that. It's instinctively, it's a part of their nature, right? Or what the Bible would call a part of their flesh. It's a part of our flesh to be selfish. So we could say, yeah, maybe it's a part of our nature to lie for selfish purposes. Yeah, it's a part of our nature to do different things. But then when we apply it to other areas of the life, people become terrified. What if, what if I was born that way? Well... Let's talk about these things for a moment. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. Um, if you don't have them, you can just listen along to 1 Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to begin right in verse 9. Now, what I, I think that, it, it, this is just personal opinion, but in my opinion, this, this passage here is one of the scariest passages in all of Scripture. But in my estimation, it's also one of the most hopeful passages in all of Scripture. That sounds kind of strange. Something could be extremely terrifying and yet very, very hopeful at the same time. But I think that you'll see why as we go through. And we're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Are you there? Yes. All right. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, Know ye not, or don't you know, that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Another way to say that is, don't you know, unrighteous people don't go to heaven. Simple, right? They don't inherit the kingdom of God or the new earth. Be not deceived... Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul lists off all of these sins. He's speaking to the church in Corinth, and he says to them, Don't you know that the unrighteous don't go to heaven? And then he says, Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. These kind of people don't go to heaven. And just in case you're wondering what unrighteous people are like, he just lists what they're like. And he lists off their sins. And, you know, he begins with, be not deceived, neither fornicators, right? Nor adult, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, and so forth and so on. He goes point by point. We're going to go through all of these quickly and try to figure out what does this mean? How does this apply to my life? Now, I'm reading from the King James, so these words are words, many of them, that we don't use very much today. A newer translation would make it much more clear than what I'm sharing with you right now. So you've got to kind of break it down and maybe look into a concordance or look at another translation. But I want you to think about this. So Paul says this. I'll I'll give you an example. I I was in the state of, I believe it was Arkansas. I was doing an evangelistic meeting. And I was talking about the Ten Commandments, specifically the fourth, and talking about the fact that the Bible says that we are called as God's people to be victorious, that we are to keep the law of God. And this lady said, no, I don't need to. I don't need to keep God's law. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, so I don't have to keep the law of God. And I said, really? And I knew she was a married woman, and I said, ma'am, if you... If you decided that you were going to go around town 
and sleep around with all the guys in town for the rest of your life until Jesus came back. She was a Baptist. I said, if you, if you were going to go sleep around town for the rest of your life, I was being very graphic, very open with her. When Jesus came back and you were living in this sin, sleeping around, you're still married, would Jesus take you to heaven? She said, absolutely. I accepted Jesus as my personal Savior. I want you to read, and then I, I brought her to this text, 1 Corinthians in 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And then she says, Paul says rather, be not, what? Deceived. Deceived. And then he says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Right? So, I, I had to read this verse, and I said, so Paul says, don't be deceived, adulterers don't go to heaven. I said, ma'am... According to this, if you choose to live that lifestyle until Jesus comes back, will you be saved? And she said, absolutely. I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I said, ma'am, Paul says you are deceived. You're deceived. And that's a reality. And I'm not just saying this to put down Christians who, the reality is when we think we can live in sin and just, you know, Jesus will save me, I can do whatever I want. Meaning, imagine, imagine if I treated my wife that way and thought, she's going to stay married to me no matter what way I treat her. How many of you would willingly want to marry somebody that thought that way of you? <laughs> oh, he'll stay married to me no matter what I do to him, right? Listen, if that's our perspective of love, we don't know what love is. It's much more than just about... See, sometimes we think of, of overcoming sin as just avoiding evil. Did you know that dead bodies avoid evil? That doesn't make them righteous. Overcoming sin, listen, overcoming sin itself is so much more than just avoiding the bad. It is more about becoming like Jesus Christ. You follow? Jesus was not just a guy that avoided sin. He was a guy that revealed to planet. He was more than a guy. He was God in the flesh. He was Jehovah Emmanuel, right? He was God in the flesh. And Jesus, much more than avoiding sin, although he fully avoided sin in every aspect of his life, more than that, he lived out the loving character of the Heavenly Father and revealed that to us. You understand? So if we think, I can do whatever I want, and I still get to go to heaven, we don't have a love for Jesus. You see, it's about love more than about avoiding sin. Although, if we genuinely love God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, we will overcome the sin. But much more, we will live out the loving life of Jesus Christ. You follow? Now, it's a little bit of a side point, but really it's actually central to all of it. Jesus said, John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? So it's about love. We keep his commandments by love, not by a stern obedience to what is right. I go to church on Saturday, right? Listen, if that's our perspective... I do it because that's what it says, and I'm going to do it even though I don't like it at all, right? No, that's not, that's not what keeping the commandments is all about. That's not what it's about. It is about a loving relationship with Jesus, and I will do what he asks because I love him. But now let's go back to the question of be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, and so forth and so on, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Let's break these down individually and see how they might apply to our generation. The first one there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, says, 
uh, after it says, be not deceived, the first one is fornicators. Now, the word there, if you go back in your Strong's Concordance, you will discover that the Greek word there for fornicator is the Greek word pornos. Pornos. Whence we obviously get the word pornography, right? Now, to keep in mind, it's not saying back then that those who looked at pornography were not going to heaven. They didn't have pornography like we do today, obviously. But what it does say for us, for them probably, this this, uh, word for fornication, I'm guessing, because it says fornication, idolatry, and then adultery. So it has fornication and adultery. So my, my guess or my understanding of this would be that you have fornication, which is probably premarital uh, sexual relationships. Now, that does not mean just having sex before marriage. It's probably having any kind of sexual activity before marriage. Does that make sense? Meaning there's much more than just the act of sex itself that is immoral. Does that make sense? All of that which is leading up to it. Keep in mind, and you say, Chatter, maybe you're just going too far, but Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 on the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in verse 27 and verse 28, you've heard that it was said by them of old time, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in his heart. So just looking has already committed... Uh, now, now, keep in mind, it's looking on a woman lustfully, not just looking, but looking with lust, has, is, is, according to Jesus, what? Adultery. Adultery. So the idea, and many people, we can rationalize in our minds that I, I didn't have sex, so what I did with my girlfriend or my boyfriend is okay. Do you see how we could choose to rationalize? I didn't commit adultery, but Jesus brings it to the very heart of the matter. The very heart of the matter, he says, just looking lustfully upon them is committing adultery. You, you got that? So, everything leading up to that process is lost. I don't mean shaking somebody's hand, you understand. But the acts that lead up to the act of sex are fornication. And Jesus says, if you choose to live in the state of fornication, you choose to live that lifestyle, if you're living that lifestyle when Jesus comes, according to the text, it says, don't be deceived, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You follow? Yeah, yeah, you think about it. Meaning, and you, you may have heard of these things called mirror neurons. Have you ever heard of those? You may not. But mirror neurons basically are neurons, brain cells, that when we, for instance, when you watch television, let's, let's say you watch someone and they're eating some really tasty ice cream and they're, you know, spooning it into their mouth and they're, mmm, mmm, they're just really enjoying it. When you're watching that, the same region, and they're like, oh, this... This banana ice cream is just phenomenal. The same regions in their brain, I, I think they, uh, you may have heard the story of how they actually kind of discovered these mirror neurons. If I remember, this basically, or at least maybe early on in the studies, what happened was these scientists were mapping the brain of monkeys. And so they had, you know, some kind of covering over their head, mapping the brain, what would go on during certain activities in the brain of a monkey. And so they would feed the, the um, peanuts to the monkey, and then they would see ding, ding, I don't remember what part of the brain, but what part of the brain was ding, ding, lighting up. The energy was taking place as they were enjoying the peanuts. So as they would put the peanuts to their mouth and they would enjoy it, a certain part of the brain was rejoicing, right? 
Now, what in, they ended up discovering is they still had this thing on the uh, head of the monkeys, and one of the scientists walked over, and he, the monkey was watching, and the scientist grabbed a peanut, and he ate it. And in the brain of the monkey, ding, 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 it was, it was rejoicing just like it was eating it also, right? It was a mirror neuron. Now, think about this. And so this is a very rudimentary way of showing that when we watch something, the same hormones, the same, to a degree, the same pleasure, the person is watching that is committing that act in front of you. It doesn't just have to be pornography. It could be any kind of sin taking place on television. Our brain is mirroring that. And so we could, in essence, say by beholding, that means by looking at something, we become changed by it. You see that? We become changed by what we look at. We become conformed to the image of that which we look at. You follow? Mm -hmm. You see why Jesus would say, if you have looked and lusted on a woman, you have committed adultery already in your heart. You follow that? This is so important. This is not legalism. This is learning to take our eyes off the things of the world. Love not the world, 1 John 2, 15, 16. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So the Bible says that we should not have a love for the world, right? The lusts of the flesh, lust of eyes, and the pride of life. We have to have a love for something else. We need to love Jesus. We need to love our Heavenly Father. So, when we behold things of the world, it changes us. When we, are, when we are looking at dirty things on television, in a magazine, on the internet, which is probably the main source of consumption for immoral stuff today for young people, when we are beholding those things, the same hormones, the same brain uh, portions that those people are actually engaging in are taking place within our bodies, and we are being negatively affected by it. And Jesus says, if you choose to live that lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You follow? Now, that's our first one. So, the first one is fornication. So, God does not want us to have, meaning, and you know, I'll, I'll step aside for a moment and say this. You'll have a happier marriage if you're not messing around with a bunch of people before you get married. Oh, but I want, I want to see that they're good. You know, people raise all these kind of things. Listen, you will be happier if you are faithful and wait. And if you haven't waited, Jesus can forgive you. But don't think just because you haven't waited, you'll just go give it to everybody now and do it with everybody. It destroys us to live that lifestyle. We can have peace and joy by stopping this very day. This very day. And God can create in you, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. So yes, you may have done that, but if you're in Christ, old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Put away the past. God can give you the victory. And you can have the peace that he wants you to have. And he can give you the marriage that he actually wants you to have. If it's his will for you to get married. So let's go on to the next one. So we already saw fornicators. Number two, the next one is what? 
idolaters. Now, idolatry, obviously, for the people there at that time, there were people who were literal idolaters. They would maybe worship idols of stone or gold or metals and these kind of things. Largely, people don't do that today. Yes, there's some people who do that today, Hindus and maybe some Buddhists who kind of, many Buddhists are really actually atheists. They don't really, they believe Buddha had a good way of life, but that's beside the point. But they, some, some kind of respect him almost as a deity. Uh, but the point is, some people actually worship idols, but we know that there's another way to be idolatrous, and that would be to have such a high esteem for the things of this world that they, we have an, a, a great desire for earthly objects, possessions, or even you can make a relationship an idol, right? So idolaters, people who maybe love so much they care too much about cars, people who care too, care too much about having a beautiful house, people care too much about having, you know, just an education. Now notice, none of, none of those things is actually wrong in and of themselves, is that right? There's nothing wrong with having a house, there's nothing wrong with having a car, and there's nothing wrong with having a good education. But any, any one of those things, or even relationship, there's nothing innately wrong with a relationship unless it's a bad relationship. None of those things is innately wrong, but when we put those things up at the at, of prime importance in our life, above our spiritual life, meaning I don't have time to spend with God because I'm just studying, you now have an idol. You see? If you don't have time for God, you have an idol. Something. It could be television. It could be whatever. And so God says people who live in idolatry will not inherit the kingdom of God. Let's go on to the next one. The next one is nor adulterers. Now, adultery, I'm, I would imagine in this situation has to be specifically with relationships, like maybe Jesus said, looking with lust. But probably one of the parties in, in this situation is a married person. So the first group, the fornicators, is probably for the unmarried group. And the ad ad adulterers, it's probably for those who are in a marriage covenant already. So if you are in a, if you're not married, but you're in a relationship with somebody who is married, that would also be adultery. It would both be fornication and adultery. But for someone who's married, it's probably considered the adulterous situation. But they're both sins worthy of losing your eternal life. And so we want to make sure that we are faithful to God in our relationship, whether we are single or whether we are married. So either way. Now... Then we move on to the next one. It says, after we come to adulterers, the King James says, nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind. Does anybody else have a newer translation where it, where it says, uh, nor effeminate nor abusers? Basically, the last two points of verse 9. Anybody have a newer translation? Homosexuals nor uh, uh, sodomites. Homosexuals nor sodomites. Newer translations just say it very clearly. Um, one of the one of the the first one where it says effeminate in in the Greek it refers to a kind of person called a catamite. I had never heard of a catamite before. Uh, I had to look that one up. And a catamite. Before I even explain it, I want to say this to you. We're being a little bit graphic in what I talk about, but keep in mind, this is what Paul talked about, and Corinthians was made to be read in church. And so I'm, I'm kind of glad there's no, you know, four-year-olds or anything here right now. I think it would be a little much for them. But we're probably using words they wouldn't understand anyway. But the point is, this is the world we live in. So it's not as if we're talking about something that people around us aren't experiencing. We don't need to be too graphic, and we should be careful. But I think you understand the point. Now, the word catamite is a word that has to do with, it was common, it was customary in the days of Greece and Rome for men to have young boys that they used for their pleasures. 
It was actually very usual back then in the days of Greece and Rome. And it said that those particip who participated in those kind of activities would not inherit the kingdom of God. But it doesn't just say the catamite. It has to do with just homosexuals who choose to live that lifestyle in general. So you have both aspects that those who choose to live that lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about that, and somebody even made a video about it, you know, trying to make, tug on the heartstrings of people and say, you know, but these people, they just, they just want to be loved, and they just want to give love. And if somebody really wants to know, I'd rather not say it on recording. I would full, I'm fully willing to say it to anybody who'd want to talk afterward. But you cannot love somebody of the same sex and destroy their body and call it love. Our bodies were not designed to do certain things that actually destroys people by living, by living out these so-called acts of love, which are not acts of loves, love. And I'm being, you probably get the idea, but I'll say that's enough for now. That's not love. A husband who loves his wife will not destroy her body, even though it's a heterosexual relationship. And so I'll leave it at that. It's not love. Love necessitates wanting to do what is best for the other party. Does that make sense? When I think I love someone and only love them because of what they do for me, that is not genuine love. Now, yes, I enjoy what somebody who loves does for me. But love also has to do with me wanting what is best for the person I am in love with, right? And if, if what I would do to that person would cause physical destruction to the body, even on a slow process, that would not be involved in love, right? So I think you get the general idea. But I, I want you to think about this also, because there's also the question of nature and nurture and the aspect of homosexuality. And I don't have the answer to it. But I do have a thought on this. What's that? There was a recent study on it. There, there was. Is it, did it have to do with twins or no? Yep. Yeah, okay, and I know a little bit about a study that was done on twins, but I want, you, I want you to think about this. Regardless if it was nature or nurture, see, what if, it, once again, if great-grandpa was an alcoholic, grandpa was an alcoholic, father was an alcoholic, I might have the genetic tendency to be an alcoholic, maybe. Let's say great-grandpa was a homosexual, grandpa was, and so was father. At least they all dabbled in it. Could it be possible that someone might have a tendency I think it's possible. See, the problem is we're all content with the fact that you could be born with a tendency to lie. Because guess what? You were born with a tendency to lie, right? Now, just because you were born with a tendency to lie, does that mean you can't overcome it, yes or no? Do you see how funny it is? But then when we enter into the realm of homosexuality, we think, well, someone's born with it, then God made them that way, and they just have to be that way. Did God make them a, 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 an alcoholic, and he just says, well, drink all you can, because that's the way I made you. It doesn't matter if you are... See, nature or nurture is an issue. The, the terms we're given in the spirit of prophecy are uh, cultivated or inherited tendencies. But what we are told is that we can find victory over which one of the two? Both. You understand? So I'm not saying someone's born with it or not. I don't care if they're born with it or not. I just know that whether they're born with it or they're not born with it, that Jesus Christ can give them the victory. Do you follow, yes or no? Do you see how, see, so I'm not saying that it is a part of your nature, because I have no idea, I'm not a scientist. 
But I don't care whether it is or not, because I know that I have a Savior who can give me victory over my inherited tendencies. I have so much in common with my earthly father that it is almost scary. Literally, when I, when I visit my family, it is amazing how much I have in common with my father. Now, I love my dad. There are some good aspects to it, but a whole lot that probably isn't so good, right? Now, and so uh, my point being, regardless of if I learned it in life or whether I got it from his genes or my mother's genes, God can give me the victory. It is true, I, I've read, and recently I just read about it a week or two ago, that yes, they've, they've done studies and they've found genetic twins who are, what do we call the uh, identical twins, and what they've discovered is that one sometimes is a homosexual and the other is not. So that would, to some, that gives the idea that it's not genetic. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't try to fight so hard to say that it's not genetic in the sense of, not because I don't, I think it is or it isn't, I don't really care, but because what if somehow they prove it someday and Christians have built up a straw man that says, if it's genetic, then it's okay. And then if they prove it's genetic, then we all have to kind of think, oh no, it's okay. The point is, it doesn't matter if it's genetic. The point is, Jesus can give the victory. And we need to remember that. It doesn't matter if your parents were a certain way. It doesn't have to be homosexuality. It could be anything. No matter how your parents were, we can sometimes use that as an excuse for why I am the way I am. But that shouldn't be an excuse. Jesus wants to give me the victory over my inherited and my cultivated tendencies. You follow? And to be very clear, it says people who are in sexual immoral relationships that are not married heterosexual don't go to heaven if they continue to lose, use, live that lifestyle people who are in married relationships who have extramarital sexual situations don't go to heaven and the same with homosexuals who live the lifestyle so you see sin is sin and we are called to turn away from those things right but it is clear some people want to say well maybe the bible doesn't mean that about homosexuals no it's, it's real maybe the bible doesn't mean it about what heterosexuals no, it means the same thing. Sin is sin, and if you choose to live in sin, you're not going to be saved. You understand? We also should not be mean to homosexuals. We should show them. My wife and I, because we do this seminar, have had the opportunity to work with several homosexuals. And, you know, God can... We, we have a couple of friends right now who are... Uh, God has given them the victory. Amen. Uh, I mean, we know, you know, I, we know another man who the Lord has given him a victory. He has a wife and children. And the two ladies that we were with, uh, I just say this as, in a hopeful way. The lady, I mean, for years she was in San Francisco and she was, she was staunch. She was one of those people that would defend the cause and fight the public schools to try to get them to implement the teaching of these things into the schools. She's totally been changed now. And um, so, so much so that she came to my, my wife one day and she said, you know, she basically told her, you know, I have a crush on a guy now. So the, the point is God can, God can change hearts. Amen? Amen. God is all powerful. Amen. He is not just powerful when it comes to heterosexual situations. He can give all of us the victory through beholding Jesus. Amen. Let's go on to the next one. Number 10, verse 10. Nor what? Thieves. You could steal in many different ways, taxes, not working hard at work, wasting time. Thieves, if you choose, or literally taking something, you know, that, that would be thievery. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. We go on, it says, nor covetous. Whoa! Covetousness is mixed in with these other terrible sins? Yes, it is. If, if I'm constantly, if I have an inordinate desire for the objects of the person of other people... 
I am covetous. And if I hold on to that, that heart, uh, if, I, if I hold on to that mind frame, I will not inherit the kingdom of God. Next one says, nor drunkards. Uh, basically, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8, it says, Behold, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake. It says in Isaiah 65, verse 8, As the new wine is found in the cluster. Now, what, what is a cluster? A cluster of what? Grapes. grapes. It says the new wine is found in the cluster of grapes. If, I, if we had a cluster of grapes right here in the front of the room, and we squeeze them, what would come out of the grapes? Juice. Grape juice. But the Bible calls it new wine. New wine. There are two different kinds of wine in the Bible. There is new wine and old wine. Jesus said when he was about to go to the cross, he, he, they were drinking of the, of the uh, he's passing around the cup there of the new wine. It was unfermented. And the reason we know that because they were having the Passover. And at the Passover, what were you not allowed to have in your house? Leaven or yeast, anything that fermented or was, or was a fermentive agent, right? So Jesus is drinking of the new wine, and he even said, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine, giving us a hint back to Isaiah 65, verse 8 maybe, where the new wine is found in the cluster. He said, I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus drank the new wine. He drank the new wine. Now, did you know all the benefits you get from the alcohol you get? We're going to talk more about that. We have the science behind it. But all the benefits you get from the wine you get from the grape juice, you just don't destroy your brain in the process. Exactly. Right? So the point being, uh, drunkards do not inherit the kingdom of God. So people who choose to go on drinking alcohol, if they choose after they know the truth, mind you, after they know the truth, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm guessing there will be people in heaven like Martin Luther who drank alcohol because he was ignorant of the truth on that perspective. He was a godly man. He was just, he hadn't come to the point where we have. So when we know the truth, and when Jesus comes back, God, everybody will have a chance to have known the truth when he comes back at the, at the end of time. So drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. God doesn't want us to be doing drugs, alcohol, these different kinds of things. Illicit drugs, you understand. Um... Next one, uh, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers. Now, a reviler, we don't use that word very much today, but it, you may have a new translation. But a reviler is basically someone who uses harsh, abusive speeches against other people. That's a reviler. Did you know if you have harsh, abusive, abusive speeches against other people, it says if you live that lifestyle, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That's kind of heavy, don't you think? That's listed with all these other sins. So we ought to watch our mouths and how we talk about other people. Don't you think that's kind of important? Because if we choose to live speaking negatively about people in the church, or even we ought to be careful about what we say about people in government. Not because of the fact that they're listening to all of our emails, which they happen to be, we just discovered, right? Not, not, not because of that, but because of our own conscience. We should not be speaking about people with harsh, abusive speeches. We ought to be praying for them. We ought to be praying for them. We go on. It says, nor revilers, nor extortioners. That's taking money through abusive things or through threats. For, either by force or threats, I should say. That's extortion. 
And then it says, nor, uh, yeah, they shall not inherit the kingdom of God. See, and the re I said this is one of the scariest passages in the world, but then I said it's also one of the most hopeful passages in the world. In the Bible, not in the world, in the Bible. Now, why, why would you think that's hopeful? It doesn't sound very hopeful to me. It just lists off a bunch of sins, and you can probably find one in there that you've committed recently. And it says if you live this lifestyle, you don't go to heaven. How on earth would that be hopeful? The answer comes in verse 11. Paul says these words, and such were some of what? You. What, does anybody have a newer translation? How's it say it? Anybody? I guess we all got the King James, huh? Verse 11. What's that? Or New King James. Or New King James. Christ is a very similar. And that's okay. If you don't have one, that's all right. But basically what it says is this is the way you what? Used to be. You were this way, which means they are not this way anymore. You follow? What does it say? Verse 11. And, and, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So what is he saying? Paul lists off a bunch of sins. And do you notice that these would be the same sins that Paul could list off for our time, the time that we live in? A bunch of sins. It's not as if Paul lived, people think, well, the reason they, they, you know, they thought homosexuality was not right back then is because they lived so long ago, and that was just different in culture back then. Wrong. It was actually okay in their culture to live this lifestyle. It was customary in the days of Greece and Rome. Greece and Rome were pagan nations, people. These were not, uh, you know, staunch Christians, the Roman Empire. Uh, yeah, okay, later on we think of it that way with Catholicism and so forth. But initially these were pagan nations, right? It was okay amongst them. They, it's, Paul wasn't teaching it because he was, you know, just kind of, he was with the old school and wasn't, didn't know about the modern days of 2013. No. Paul lived in a day when it was modern, when the, it was customary, it was cosmopolitan to do these things. And the reality is, is Paul spoke what the Word of God said. He didn't follow culture, he didn't follow the times, he followed the Word of God. But after listing off all these sins, he says to the church in Corinth, if, if you are having premarital sexual relationships, not just sex, but leading up to that, if you are an idolater, if you are an adulterer, if you're living a homosexual relationship, if you're a, a drunkard, if you're a reviler, an extortioner, he says, listen, you're not going to go to heaven. But then he says to the church in Corinth, he was speaking to the church, he says, this is the way you people in the church used to be. What he was saying is the church in Corinth was a church that was made up of former people who had sexual immoral relations. They were idolaters. They were former homosexuals. They were all of these things, but they had been changed by Jesus Christ. Now, according to this, can an adulterer be changed, yes or no? Yes. According to this, can an idolater be changed, yes or no? According to this, can a homosexual be changed, yes or no? Notice it doesn't say this is the way you still are, but you like Jesus now. It says, this is the way you were. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. The Holy Spirit has entered into your life and He has changed your life. Friends, God wants to give us the victory. He wants to give us complete and total victory, regardless of what temptation we have. 
And so that's why in this seminar, we want to learn to overcome. And we talked about this, that, the, that never forget. So how are we changed? How is the character? How are the habits? How are the actions changed? They are changed when our thoughts are transformed. And that's why we should never forget that thoughts work on actions. Repeated actions form habits. And habits form character. What you are thinking about, what you are looking at the internet, the books that you read, the people you spend time with, will decide what you will think about and they will cause you to act and have habits or, and then a character. So I want to challenge you to be in the Word of God. We discovered that the frontal lobe is the seat of spirituality, morality, and the will. And I want you to guess this just for a moment. We go till 12? Yeah. Okay, so we have 15 minutes. Now, a cat has 3.5% frontal lobe. Do which one? Wall drug? Okay, maybe I'll, okay, I'll share you with you one thing and then we'll go to, I'll give you just a quick point on science, then I'll share with you a beautiful illustration to help us overcome. We have much more science, but I wanted to share these things with you just because these are real issues that people deal with in our day. And guess what? Every one of you has experienced some of these temptations we just read about. And the good news is God wants to give you and he wants to give me the victory. Is that good news, yes or no? I was just reading this morning. Oh, I love those books we've been given. I really love them. We've been given so much wisdom. You know, we are told, oh man, I should have grabbed my bigger Bible. I just had my pocket Bible. But in my bigger Bible, I wrote some quotes in the back of it. But uh, we are basically told that our temptations, because when, when I first tried to overcome cigarettes, it was hard as could be. I stumbled back into it several times when I would try to quit cigarettes. And, uh, but now it's not hard anymore. The Lord gave me the victory. And we are, and it's fully God's grace. It's not my strength, it's His. And we, we are told that through repetition, she says, self-restraint strengthens with exercise. Through continual effort, habits become easy. Think about that. I was trying to kiss Swig Erickson, it was super hard. But through, through, through repeated effort, it became a habit. And through this persevering effort, habits became easy. Think of your worst temptation that you have. Imagine if it were easy to overcome it. Well, it's not easy when you try to begin. But we're told that, that we, we're strengthened by exercising these, these right decisions. And actually that every right decision we make, we're told, we're also told that every bad decision we make makes it easier to go into a bad situation. But it's, it's true either way. So once we come back to Jesus and every time we make that decision, the right decision, it just strengthens us by God's grace to make the next decision. You may have heard that Alexander the Great, that his soldiers, imagine if you were in, I played on a football team when I was younger. We lost every single game. And I think we scored one or two touchdowns the entire season. How do you think we felt getting out there on the field every day? We hated it. We were miserable failures, honestly. But how do you think you'd feel if you were the team that won every game? We don't want to say yes because we know that's a demonic game. And it is, right? It's no good, but like, well, like bad maybe. No, no. It'd be, I mean, if you, if you liked football and you played, it would, you'd feel great if you won every game. But yeah, okay, it's not a good game. It's barbaric and it's like gladiator sport. It's no good. But I played. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know these things. But you understand. But listen, if, if you lost every game, you probably would never want to. If you lost every war you went into, every battle, you wouldn't want to fight anymore. But it's said that Alexander's soldiers, 
that they actually just had a thrill. They had a desire to get on the next field of battle. Why? Because every battle they won. And imagine in your spiritual life it was the same way. Imagine if every time you came to a temptation, you know, I am so weak right now, I'm going to fall if I don't cling to Jesus Christ. And then you cling to Jesus and you find the victory. Every battle would strengthen you by not, not thinking, man, I really did good last time. Woo, look at that. I'm getting pretty good at this sin situation, right? Now, if you start thinking that, you're going to fall next time, right? But if the next time you say, Jesus gave me the victory last time, and he's going to give me the victory the, the next time. And each time we come into battle, Alexander's soldiers desired to, to just run right into the fray because they knew they had an amazing general, the best general the earthly soldiers had known. Up until that point. And in the same way, if we know our general Jesus Christ, we know that he has never lost a battle when someone trusted him as their general. And if we day by day find the victory, God wants to strengthen our frontal lobes. He wants to strengthen us. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of science, then I'll share with you an illustration, then we'll be done. So, oh man, I ruined it. I was going to say, what animal has a larger frontal lobe? Well, now you know. And what I discover is that people who love cats think cats have bigger frontal lobes, and people who like dogs, they think dogs have bigger frontal lobes. But the dog people win. Dogs have larger frontal lobes than cats do, okay? And uh, about twice the size. And that's why cats can be fine pets, but they're kind of like a wild animal in your house. And even if you love them, that's okay. But they run around and they do whatever they want, and they're kind of hard to control, right? But dogs, on the other hand, they want to spend time with you. They want to be right there. Cats are like, pet me. No, stop. Don't do it anymore. No, don't, right? Cats are just weird. They're kind of like their own thing, you know? And... I'll leave it at that. But dogs, on the other hand, you know, they're, they're man's best friend. You may have a great cat, too, and that's okay. But regardless of the point, dogs have a greater capacity to kind of care for their owner in general, we'll say. Maybe you've got an amazing cat. What do you think has a bigger uh, frontal lobe, a dog or a chimpanzee? Chimpanzees or some kind of monkeys have 17% of their brain is the frontal lobe. And we can see they're much more human-like. God made them that way. And they're really interesting for us. We love, you go to the zoo and what's one of people's favorite exhibits to go by? The monkeys. We love to see those creatures. They're so funny, you know. And, but obviously what has a larger frontal lobe? Obviously the human. The human, 33% of a human brain is the frontal lobe. A full third of the human brain is the frontal lobe. And we can strengthen that frontal lobe. And in this seminar we're going to continue to go on and find out how. Scientifically, how biblically can we learn to overcome with the principles God has given us? What I find fascinating, I read a book just some time ago, um, fascinating book called The Willpower Instinct. It was a secular book, but it had some interesting points to it. And Robert Sapolsky, a neurobiologist at Stanford University, has argued that the main job of the modern prefrontal cortex, this is interesting, is to bias the brain and therefore you... So the frontal lobe's purpose is to help you toward doing the what? Harder thing. I think that's interesting. When it's easier to stay on the couch, your prefrontal cortex makes you want to get up and exercise. When it's easier to put that project off tomorrow, it's your prefrontal cortex that helps you open the file and make progress anyway. Get the point. The prefrontal lobe is kind of like the conscience. 
This doesn't have to scare you and say there's no Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit works through this part of your brain. And the more your brain is in tune with the Word of God, the more clearly it can understand the will of God. But the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe, is the decision-making center that helps you do the harder thing. Have you noticed that in life, the harder thing is many times the best thing to do? Right? Like, meaning, meaning, yes, the easier thing to do would just keep eating and eating and eating, but you know you feel better when you don't overeat, right? The, sometimes the easier thing to do if you've been a drug addict is just to do the drug again, but how do you feel when you're all done, when the, when the effects of the drug wear away? You feel empty, right? But the prefrontal lobe, the frontal cortex, is part of the brain that wants to bias you toward doing the harder thing, but it's still not easy to do the harder thing always, right? I want you to think about this. Think about, of the purpose of the frontal lobe, and then think of this text about Jesus from 1 Peter chapter 4. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. So what does it say? For as much as Christ, what did he do for us in the flesh? He suffered. Let me ask you a question. When you are struggling with the temptation, do you, do you feel a suffering going on inside your soul? Unless you just dive headfirst into it, you know. But if you're, if you're actually at that point where you're, where you're try, thinking, should I do it, should I not? There's a suffering that's taking place within, right? Now, lady, lady we, we worked with, she said, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to quit smoking until Jesus just takes it away from me. Because before he took it away from me totally, I didn't even have to try. And I'm not going to quit again until he just takes it away from me. Sometimes we feel if we have to suffer to overcome temptation, we're, we're trying to have salvation by works. But that's not biblical. There is suffering involved in overcoming. The frontal lobe tries to bias you to go through the suffering to get to the freedom that Jesus wants to give you. You understand? What does it say? For as much then as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Meaning, you have to accept that you're going to suffer to overcome temptation. You, feel, you follow? It's going to take a suffering. But remember, we're, we're told in SOP that what? That actually that suffering will become easier after a while. And it will finally become easy. The suffering is in the beginning. But it yields, the Bible says, the peaceable, peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? So... Arm yourselves with this mind like Jesus had that was able to suffer in the flesh. It says, for he that has suffered in the flesh has what? Cease from sin. So if you're going to cease from sin, you have to suffer in the flesh like Jesus did. You see? So he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, what's the result? That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. You're going to have, I have to break the news, you're going to suffer. And you know, God's last generation is going to suffer like no other generation. But their suffering is going to cause them to cease from sin. We have the most sin too. It's true. We have the most wicked generation is deteriorated from the time of Adam till today. Jesus wants to give us the victory, but we will suffer. I, I, I talked with a man who was persecuted, thrown in prison for his faith for keeping God's holy seventh day, was thrown in prison in Romania, was tortured, was starved almost to death. He suffered in the flesh to overcome sin, but he was faithful to Jesus all the way through. 
And while he was faithful, I finally wondered, because he was literally tortured, they, they, uh, they starved him for 50 days, and the, he did have scraps of food that the other prisoners felt bad for him, and they would throw him literally scraps of bread, almost nothing. And by the 50th day, he was literally just passing out over and over. He was just passing out. I mean, he was literally about to die. God did finally, through a miraculous situation, he got him food. But I wondered, is this man like a Navy SEAL? You know, you know Navy SEALs, they'll die for their country just because they have an iron will. They, will, they could be an atheist, but they will die for their country with an iron will. And I thought, is this guy, Nico Butoy, this man, is he, is he a Navy SEAL? And then there's people like me who I don't want to be tortured, right? <laughs> And I asked him, I said, are you, are you just someone who can just take tremendous amount of suffering and it's just, it's really not hard for you? And he, he was a little guy. He was not, you know, some hulking, you know, just hulk of a man. And he said, you know, no, he smiled. And he said, not at all. Really, I, I don't like to suffer through pain. But he basically said, Jesus gave me the victory. Jesus will give you the victory. We will have to suffer, though. But he will be there with you in the suffering. He will arm you with the same mind if you're willing to go through it. And in closing, how many of you have been to uh, Wall Drug? One? Anybody else? Wall Drug. South Dakota? Two. Okay. Wall Drug, South Dakota. I'm going to tell you, you don't know what it is, and... I'm going to break the news to you what it is. But um, wall drug, when you, first, when you first drive through South Dakota, and unless you have to, you never drive through South Dakota. I've had to drive through it several times. I actually legally live there. I don't live there, but uh, I have a post office box there. I live in a motor home on the road full time. But um, when you drive across South Dakota the very first time, the first time I did, I was uh, 19 years old. And when, you, when you're just about to enter into South Dakota, you see a sign that says something like wall drug, 435 miles. And your first thought is, what is that? And then you drive a little further and it says wall drug, 406 miles, free ice water. And okay. And then you go a little further, wall drug, 390 miles. Five cent coffee. And you go a little further and it says, Wall drug, life size dinosaurs. What is going on here? Then you go a little further and you see another billboard, and literally you have about five hours where you see almost nonstop billboard. Not nonstop, but you see you're driving, then you see another billboard for Wall drug, and you don't even know what it is. You, get, you keep going, and it says, wall drug, um, you know, buffalo burgers. Then you get further, and it says, wall drug as advertised on London buses. And you go further, and it says, wall drug as advertised in Time magazine. Wall drug. And you're seeing all these things, and you're thinking, what is this? must be amazing. I mean, all these things across the world, everybody knows about wall drug. And look, most of you don't even know what it is, right? And so you keep going, and, and, you're, and listen, there's almost nothing in the state of South Dakota. You hardly see any houses. It's a barren wasteland of hills. No trees mo there in, until you get to the western side of the state. It's just literally hills with nothing on them. And you keep driving, you see these. So after a while, you're thinking about wall drug, and you decided after a while, I'm going to go. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to go to it, right? They got 
free ice water. I'm, I'm going to go. And so, and so you finally, and then as you get there, and I'm not exaggerating, as you get just a few miles from it, it literally is boom, boom, billboard, 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 both sides of the highway, wall drug, wall drug, wall drug, wall drug, wall drug, literally. This exit, coming up, come on, you know, and it's just, it's going crazy. And you do it, almost everybody does, who goes through the state of South Dakota for the first time, they go to wall drug. And then you get there, and I think it used to be worse, because we just went, actually, they have veggie burgers now, so we just went and had a veggie burger there last week, you know? But it used to, the first time I went there, I thought, like, what? What it is, it's a city called, it's a town, not a city, a, a town called Wall, and it has a drugstore. And, and so they got you to come through good advertising. Now it seems like they got a bunch more. Now it doesn't, now they got, you know, I don't know, ant stuffed animals. and I don't know, it, it's okay, but, but it's still not that great. I mean, come on, you know, be honest. And so the funny thing is, though, the first time I went, I was like, that's it, wall truck, that's really kind of worthless. And then I would have to drive through South Dakota from time to time. And when I was driving through, I would get almost to South Dakota in that first billboard, wall drug, 435 miles. And then I'd think, here we go again. And you go a little further and you see the next one, wall drug, wall drug, wall drug. And for five hours, you're thinking about wall drug. And so then I'd realize this place is worthless. I have no need to go there. And then I would be getting to the exit as the signs are boom, 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 boom. And I know this is the next exit. And so for five hours, my mind has been thinking about wall drug. And I decided I'm not going to do it. I am not going to wall drug. There's no point. There's nothing I need there. Why would I go? And so I'm driving by with boom, 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 just sign after sign after sign. And, and I decide I'm not going to do it. And as I drive up to that exit, I decide I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And I drive by the exit. And then as I pass the exit, I feel like I'm missing something. Like maybe, maybe it just would have been a little better this time, right? Now, the, the reality is, is we have a similar experience in our spiritual life. The devil brings back memories of a past temptation and the seeming fleeting joy that we had when we would commit that sin. You follow? And so what he does is he throws up billboards to get you thinking because he knows by beholding, by looking, you become changed. You follow? And so what ends up happening is we need a, we need a billboard. The, the devil, he uses billboards because he knows they work. So we have to have our billboard. And so I, I have my own. I have my own billboard, right? I carry, I carry Bible verses and I, and I memorize them so that when, when the devil's thoughts come into my mind, because I'll tell you, I have thousands of songs probably memorized, um, just wicked songs, so songs from the world, probably thousands. I have a very keen memory for music. And I don't forget the tunes. I don't forget the songs. When I go to the mall, boom, I know it, right? When I go to the store, boom, it's, it's back in the head. Well, the devil knows, and so I have a song for almost anything you can think of, of the world. And so the devil knows that, so he's filled up every sentence you can think of, every saying humans have, there's a secular song for it, so that he could constantly keep that music coming back to your mind. So we need to replace those billboards that he has with God's billboards, right? We can take his, you know, we can take his words, uh, you know, from any text of Scripture, we can take these things and say, God, you told me in James 1, through 25, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Right? And we can go on. But the point is, so the temptation comes and I can say, Father, I, you, know, I'm, you know I'm struggling with temptation right now, but you promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear. Father, you promised me 
You promised that you'll make a way for me to escape this temptation. Father, I need the victory through you. It's not like we quote the verses like a magic trick. We bring them to him through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6 says. Friends, God will give you the victory. We have talked in this message. I, I, I just want to challenge you. Bible promise verses, they're not everything. You need to be in prayer. You need to be studying your Bible. But it is something that we're told. We're actually commanded in Scripture and in the spirit of prophecy that this is something we need to be doing. This is something we need to be doing. We're actually told that if we do not, if, if, if we wait for God to do these things for us, the time will come if we haven't stored things up in our mind, God will not work a miracle to bring them into mind. So God wants to give us the victory. We have talked about some of the spiritual ways to overcome. We're still going to talk more about spiritual ways to overcome, but we're going to be talking about scientific ways that make it easier to overcome, that fit with the Bible, that fit with health, and they fit with what we've been taught, you know, 100 years ago, these wonderful messages we've been given. God has given us scientific ways to make it easier. And I, I, I can even testify. I was just eating some, not, I mean, I was still vegetarian and everything, but eating some much unhealthier food than I, I would normally eat, and it affected my character just a week or two ago. It affects me. I know it. I can see it. I didn't used to see that. But we are told these things, and I can testify this. We're going to look at scientific ways to actually make it easier to overcome as we move on into the next session. But before we take our break, and I guess we have lunch, and uh, more than lunch, there's a break from now till 1 or whatever. But let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you promised to give the victory. We thank you that you list off all these sins in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 10, and you say that this is the way your people in the church of Corinth used to be. Father, that you can give us the victory. Father, we need you. We want to be made victorious. Father, I pray that we would turn away from the billboards of the enemy and we would turn to your billboards. The messages we have been given from you through the Holy Scriptures. That we would become victorious as we spend time beholding our Savior Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. As we behold Him in the desire of ages and these things, and may we be changed into His character. And as we move on in our next session this afternoon to look at science and health and how these things can help us to be overcomers, actually we're told if we don't follow the health principles in the last days, we will not make it. This isn't righteousness by veggies, but it is a fact that when we live according to the way you designed our body to live, that it helps to give us the victory. But it's all through you. So we thank you for your love. Bless us as we continue our study this afternoon in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.